Before we go to God's word and hear from him, let's pray. Father, what an incredible gift that you would speak to us. Your word is always right, it's always good, it's always timely, it's always helpful, it's always profitable. We can hear it so frequently that sometimes it becomes commonplace to us, but it is nothing but extraordinary. So prime our souls to know they are starved without hearing from you. Grant us the grace to be hungry for it, that we would come and listen to it, engage with it with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we would bend our knees beneath it. This is an exceedingly encouraging text, but it's still so easy to, to have other things vie for our attention and other authorities be louder. So help us to submit to your word today. Above all things, what all, every single person in this room needs is to leave this place more impressed, more confident in King Jesus. Make him loud in our songs and our conversations, our prayers and communion during this sermon. And I pray throughout this week until we get to gather in this place. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So one of the um, great things I got to do on vacation, this doesn't make anyone jealous, it just relates to this text, is I got to, to go to, to Maui. It's like my wife's favorite place in the world. She loves to go to Hawaii, and so we had put off a couple of trips during COVID, and so we were able to get back there. So we're in Maui, and one of my wife's favorite spots in Maui is at the end of Kaunapali Beach. This area called Black Rock because she loves to snorkel. She loves to go out into the water and kind of float above the fish. And, and so we're out there snorkeling, my two daughters, my wife, the four of us. We'd gone around the end of, of Black Rock. And I don't know, the, 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 the ocean floor is maybe 15 feet below. And then it kind of rises up with some reefs. And there's, I've seen an octopus out there before. It was super cool. I mean, tons of different fish. You're watching them. And at some point while we're out there, you kind of, you're past the end. And, and you're, you're looking at the reef. And then the other side, it's just like open ocean as far as you can see it just says vastness and and my wife is getting kind of tired she says hey I'm going to be done snorkeling I'm going to go back into the beach and then my daughter said you know we want to go explore around the other side so there's kind of this point and so I'm out on the end of this point my wife had gone to one side my daughters went to the other side and then I was like I should probably make sure that Katie gets back okay because we always try to partner up and so I said okay I'm going to head back and I'm beginning to swim out and I'm just floating over the reef and I'm looking at all the fish and you know out in the distance you see just this vast ocean it's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. And then out of the abyss, you see the form that you is unmistakable. Those eyes, that fin. Shark. Shark begins to swim out of the darkness. And I'm just sitting there like a big, slow sea turtle. <laughs> I see the shark, and it's coming directly at me. And I start just flapping. And I go, this is really dumb. I, I, got, like, I look like wounded prey. Come eat me. I can't swim away. And so I tried to channel like big fish vibes, like, come on. But I was petrified. Life's like that. Like things are going well. You're having fun. You're, things are, are humming, or, or they're just maybe okay. It's out of the darkness, something comes. And it terrifies you, or it creates anxiety, or it's disturbing, or you're distraught. 
fears and worry, difficulties. We face it all the time. Election season is upon us. Are you excited as I am? All of the slander, all of the deception, all of the, all the worry, all the, is my candidate going to win? If my candidate doesn't win, what's going to happen? You know, what's the school board's next decision and how might it impact me and my kids and the people that I care about? My job's going fine, but what, what might HR mandate? And then I have to wrestle through, what's that look like for me to stay faithful to Jesus? Find out you're pregnant, praise the Lord. And then something looks unusual on an ultrasound. When will I get my blood test results back? And what will they tell me? When's the next microscopic virus gonna show up? And then monkeypox. 9% inflation. How am I gonna pay for $5 gas? This is life. It is unpredictable. You cannot predict what's coming around the corner, but here's what you can do. You can prepare. God's gonna tell us how in Psalm 125. It's gonna give us three things in this text. Stability, security, and certainty. Stability, security, and certainty. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? This is God's holy, wonderful, confidence-inducing word. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Feel free to grab a seat. The gift of this text is is incredible. Verse one, those who trust in the Lord, this, this settled confidence, this immovability, this stability, this free from worry. In a world of anxiousness, this gift is truly beautiful, but for me, and I imagine for many of you, stability is often pretty elusive. There's a lot of things that make us worry. I'll give you a few reasons for that. There's lots of them. I'll give you two of them that can make us doubt the truth of a text like this. One of them is our past or present experiences. Another would be misplaced confidence. Our past or present experiences. I remember the, I think it was the 2001 Nisqually earthquake. I was working as a graphic designer in Seattle. I was up on the sixth floor of a building and I'm standing in front of this giant window. I'm making a presentation to a client and while I'm presenting, 
the, the, this stuff started to shake and I didn't clue in to what it was until the rest of the room had dove under desks and I'm just standing by this window and they're like, Rob, it's an earthquake. And I remember as it began to, to roll and if you were there, if you, if you were part of it, what I remember is that it, it, it kind of, it just kept building and kept going. And I remember standing on the edge of this, this window, which was dumb, but I was standing on the edge of this window as the building began to sway and then sway more. And then there was just a point where I just was like, this is it. It's going to come down. No, it didn't. There's cracks all over the place. There's brick all over the place. There's windows that are broken out, but the building stood. Now, 20 years later, when I go up into tall buildings... There's almost always a moment when I begin to just kind of wobble. I just kind of, my past experience has loaded into me a, a, a doubt, a lack of confidence in the engineers and the, the construction workers and the strength of the steel. Now my perception, here's what's really interesting, my perception of the strength of the building does not change the strength of the building. It's either going to stand or it's going to fall. What I feel about it doesn't really change the strength of that object, but it does impact my ability to be stable. You know, isn't that how life works? We get knocked about. God, where were you? What are you doing? We read another headline, God, I thought you were sovereign over leaders and rulers. What's going on? Sickness takes root. God, I thought you said you were for me and you loved me. Your kids begin to go sideways. God, I thought I, I raised them to love Jesus. What's going on? The ground starts shaking, we start wobbling. Now, it's not as if the Lord has ceased to be for us, or the Lord has ceased to be the Lord, or the Lord has ceased to be strong, or the Lord has said, oh, I'm not going to keep my promises anymore, but our perception of the situation changes, and it causes us to shake. Or how about this one, misplaced confidence. I came across a... Um, great blog post and a prayer by a guy named Scotty Smith. I'd encourage him to anyone here. He just takes like a, a verse of scripture, a, a little section, he flips it into just really wonderful, rich prayers. And so I came across one that was trusting in the Lord and naming the competition. And he pulls it from Psalm 20 verse 7 that, that says this. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So some are trusting in all these other things, but we are going to trust in the Lord our God. And entity walks through all sorts of things we tend to, to trust, good things. I want you to hear this. Sometimes really good things. But they don't have the kind of resilience and robustness that we can build our lives on to become immovable. I'll read it. Heavenly Father, the battle for our heart's trust is relentless, often vicious and quite deceptive. As this day begins and continues, we affirm that only you are worthy of our worship, love, and trust. But it's also important for us to name the people, places, and things to which we often default in our weakness and foolishness. Now, in David's day, it was chariots and horses. In our day, the battle for our trust, salvation, and worship often includes stuff like this. Some trust in the goodness, in their goodness and discipline, and niceness. But we trust in the finished work of Jesus and the gift of his perfect righteousness. Some trust in their spouse's affection and their children's performance. 
but we trust in the steadfast love and great delight our God has for us in Jesus. Some trust in their stock portfolios, cash margins, real estate. But we trust in the unsearchable riches of Christ and the inviolate treasure kept for us in heaven. Some trust in their physique, their athleticism and sensuality. But in sickness and in health, in youthfulness and aging, we trust in the truly beautiful and all-powerful one, Jesus. Some trust in being smart, wise, and right. But we trust in Jesus, who is our wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Some trust in being included in special groups and circles and clubs. But we trust in the gift of our union with Christ and the ongoing communion we enjoy with the entire Trinity. Some trust in their vocational productivity and place on the org chart. But we trust the one who is making all things new and are standing in his grace. Father, again we say it, though many people, places, and things incessantly vie for our hearts, passion, delight, and trust, only you are worthy. It's a long list, and we could keep going and going and going and going. And the the hope today, the hope of this psalm, the hope that God has for you, if you are his, or if you're not yet his, he wants you to come to know him, that you might have this, something more sure, something more permanent, something stable. Verse 1 makes clear where this trust is grounded. Those who trust in the Lord. There's a lot that we can unpack from that phrase, the Lord, but when you see the Lord spelled in your Bibles like this, when it's spelled with all capital letters, it's not specifically a title, although it is. It's a title for God. It's not a title as much as a statement of his character and his name. It's actually pulling from, from, from one of the proper names that God has revealed to his people. It's the Hebrew, it's the English, when you take Lord and you spell it all caps, it's the translation of the the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. It's a word used, it's a name used all throughout the Bible and the first book of the Bible in Genesis, it's used over a hundred different times, but it's not until the book of Exodus that the, the essential character of what that name means is actually displayed and it's, and it's revealed to a guy named Moses who was appointed by God to deliver his people out of slavery and captivity out of Egypt. So God is having this, this, this I was going to say conversation, that feels like too, work of, too weak of a word, this commissioning to Moses. I'm raising you up, Moses, to go back into, the, the, at that time, the global superpower that you can be my mouthpiece to see my people emancipated out of all of this oppression. We see it in, or in Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through following. This is, what, this is the one you're trusting. When you trust in the Lord, this is, this is the sort of things that he is and he does. God spoke to Moses and he said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. 
God's people, when they would sing Psalm 125 on their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, when this word was used, Lord, it would have had such weightiness to them. Actually, God's people, they didn't actually say the, the, the name Yahweh. They actually said the name Jehovah because the name Yahweh was so weighty, so precious, so powerful. They couldn't even touch it with their lips. His power, his promises. It's the call. This, this verse one is a call to remember his inestimable power, his unbreakable promises. God's people needed that. They needed that. Verse 3 in this psalm actually is the, the context in which this song was written and sung in, that there's a scepter of wickedness, that there's corruption amongst our leaders. There's, 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 there's bad policies and decision-making happening by those that God is allowing to rule. Their, their society is going sideways. He says, oh, remember me, the Lord. Stand on me, lean on me. Put all your weight against me. Now this text doesn't say, trust in the Lord who is immovable, although that's true. Wonderfully it's true. This text actually says, those who trust the Lord are immovable. Don't miss that in this text. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. They can't be moved. They can't be rattled. They can't, they're not going to stumble. The, 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 the word actually can be translated this way. They don't flinch. His wickedness comes out of the abyss of the ocean. They don't lose control. Mount Zion, this reference to Mount Zion was where Jerusalem was. Jerusalem kind of sat at the top of it and it was this look towards this mountain. Look at this, this place of stability because God knows how prone we are to get nervous and worried and forgetful. He says, I want you to put your eyes on something that has stood forever. In Israel's history, good kings rose up, bad kings rose up, but Zion was there the entire time. There was rain and harvest. There was drought and famine. But they could look to the horizon and say, Zion is always there. There was corruption. There was righteousness. But Zion was always there. There was attacks from, from, from foreign enemies. But Zion was always there. Even when God's people got carried off of their land and taken a thousand miles away into exile, Zion was still standing. The Songs of Ascent, this series of psalms from 120 through 134, it was, it was used by God's people likely about three times a year as they would make their way up to Jerusalem. They would sing these as a way of tuning their hearts to who God is. And while they would journey towards Jerusalem, guess what they would see on the horizon the entire time? Zion. They'd see the mountain. They'd say, no matter what I face on this walk towards eternity, I can set my eyes on that hill and I know that God is sure and I can be stable and steadfast. Now we live in an area, thanks be to God, with lots of mountains, lots of hills, lots of peaks. Every time you see Baker or the Chuckanuts or Galbraith or Lookout Mountain or Blanchard, I'm hoping that you think of this verse, those who trust in the Lord will be stable. Stable. 
They will be steadfast. God has given us a gift by Washington State license plates. I'll give you one where even when the mountains around us are concealed, you know what you can do? Just look at the back of any car. It's like you're going to have about a thousand reminders every single day of how mighty God is and how stable he can make those who trust him. The back of that life, Mount Rainier, so majestic, towering over the city of Seattle. God is saying that's what you become like. That, like not just he's that, oh, he is that. But those who trust in him, they become like that. Trust in the Lord. But what if I find a spot on my back? Trust in the Lord. But what if the economy just absolutely tanks? Trust in the Lord. But what if my spouse doesn't want to be near me anymore? Trust in the Lord. What if my kids are really struggling? Trust in the Lord. I'm not saying that flippantly. I am saying that as a fellow sojourner and wanderer and struggler. Trust in the Lord. Verse one, stability. Verse two, security. You know what I would have loved to know when I was in the ocean with the shark? I would have loved to have known what kind of shark it was. I didn't know. I, I looked it up after I... I think I actually ran on water. I, I ran as fast as I could like, to get back to the... To, but but I, I didn't know what it was. And, and it would have helped to know that it's what's known as a white tip reef shark. And, and to, to realize that they don't pose much of a threat to humans. Even though it was bigger than me and next to me and scared me, th th there's not much of a threat. That in over 100 years of... I think there's like five classifications of reef sharks. There's only been 24 attacks. And now, no, you're like, 24? But it's 24 in like 100 years of millions and millions of encounters and, and none of them fatal. That would have been very helpful to know, but I didn't know it. So here's what I wish I had while I was in the ocean. I want one of those shark-proof cages. I'd be like, let's go. <laughs> Come on, let's go, baby. I just, I would be... What do you got for me? I'll look at your big teeth and you can bang the cage and I'm just going to laugh. Instead of, please don't eat me, Mr. Shark. I'm not healthy. I got too much cholesterol. You know, I wish I had a shark-proof cage. Verse 2 is a shark-proof cage. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth to forevermore. Verse 2 is a geography lesson. It's saying, okay, you have Mount Zion, you have Jerusalem, but around Jerusalem, what you actually have is higher peaks that surround it. God strategically placed the center of worship and the center of his people's life in a place that had all of these wonderful natural defenses. If you wanted to get to God's people, you had to go through these higher peaks and mountains, and you could see people coming from a lot. You didn't just have to go up to one. You had to like go up and around and all these different paths. And God is saying, I am like that for those that trust in me. I'm like that for those that don't trust in me. I'm surrounding you. I'm like a wall of fire all around you. I'm enveloping you. I love how this text talks about these mountains that were around Zion that was always where the mountains are always there. God's always there. You don't have to call in the reinforcements. You don't have to, 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 to phone a friend, oh, please help me. God is always there, just like the mountains, serving witness, even when it doesn't look like it. Verses 1 and 2 are what are known as similes, the like 
as something or like something. It's a, it's a literary device to make comparisons, to try to make something real actually real to us. So he's saying, you can be stable, and I am always around you and with you. Now, nowhere is the reality that God surrounds us more real than we look to what he's given to us in Christ, who's known as the stone that became a mountain that filled the whole earth. The one who most fully surrounds us, who clothes us, who covers us, who allows us to be stable because he gives us eternal security is Christ Jesus. This is the, the story of the gospel, this declaration of how God comes and ransoms and reclaims people. Do you know that Christ actually went up on the mountains around Jerusalem on the night before he was crucified? He went up to, to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when Christ went up to that, that mountain, as he prayed to the Father, he said, Father, oh, if this cup that I'm supposed to drink can pass, if we could do it any other way, let it pass, but not my will be done. What he was saying is the cup of God's wrath, his judgment against our rebellion, he's saying, I'll drink it, God. I'll take it for anyone that would trust in me. I'll drink it to the bottom. There'll be none of your judgment left for them. I will take it all. And he's captured... He's brutalized. You talk about verse three in the scepter of wickedness. Jesus facing an unjust trial by corrupt men. And then he was drug up another mountain. Mount Calvary. And there as he was nailed to a tree in what looked like utter defeat, he triumphed over all wickedness and all evil and all the enemies and all the calamity. And then he went to a tomb and he's buried in that bedrock but three days later, the stone gave way. He, he came out. And then he actually, 40 days later, he ended up back at a mountain. He ended up at, back at the Mount of Olives. He sat with his disciples. And in light of his resurrection, he says, Here's, you're going to stay here. You're going to be my witnesses. And I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to empower you. And I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. You have nothing to fear. The risen Christ is for you. This is what Scotty Smith was saying in his blog post. We don't trust our goodness. We trust the righteousness of Christ as our confidence. We don't trust our relationships as wonderful as they can be. We trust the resurrection of Christ who is always for us and will never leave us. We don't trust the ups and downs of a stock market and our 401ks and our careers and our promotions. And we don't get derailed by our layoffs. We believe in a king that says... You get to share my inheritance. I'm building mansions for you. It is imperishable, kept, undefiled, where it can never be taken. We don't worry about this skirmish and that decision because the sovereign king reigns and one day his kingdom is coming and it will be on earth as it is in heaven. James Boyce, in his commentary on the psalm, he draws attention to a remarkable life picture of what it looks like to see verses one and two come into practice. What it looks like to really believe that you are surrounded by the Lord that produces a sort of stability where you can't be shaken. He points to the story of, of St. Patrick. You know, a little, little bit more than St. Patrick's Day and green beer and clovers. St. Patrick was a remarkable figure, just an absolutely remarkable figure. He was kidnapped um, he was Roman, he's living in, in England with his family, and he was kidnapped by Irish pirates when he was a teenager. And he was then taken off into Ireland, 
and he was subscribed to work for a very corrupt warlord. While he was there, the faith of his youth, the seeds that his parents had planted, I hope this is an encouragement to all the parents in the room, the seeds that the Lord had planted, they came to harvest. And while Patrick was enslaved in, in Ireland, he came to faith, he came to believe in Christ. He was there for six years and, and then, then he felt like the Lord spoke to him and said, okay, I've created a way of escape and so he's able to, to flee. He escapes from Ireland. When he gets back to England, he devotes himself. He says, okay, God, I'm yours. You saved me. You emancipated me. You've delivered me. He begins to study the Bible. He studies theology. He, 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 and then 25 years later, he feels like the Lord says, I want you to go back to Ireland. But not in vengeance, not in anger, not in malices to this culture that you don't love, to this community of people that have hurt you. I want you to go back in grace. And I want you to go back in mercy. And I want you to tell them about Jesus. So Patrick does. Patrick goes back to Ireland 25 years after escaping. He preached about Jesus. Ireland was a very dangerous, brutal, difficult place at this time. Full of tons of corruption. Here's, Patrick talks about this in one of his journals. He says, daily I expect to be murdered or betrayed or reduced to slavery if the occasion arises. But I fear nothing because of the promises of heaven. Boyce, when he's telling this story, he asks this question like, where did Patrick find the strength to go back? If you put yourself in that spot to go back into that, where do you find the strength to not just hit the eject button on our culture? To not just run. Where do you find the strength to go in, but not angry and not mean, but full of grace and truth? We get the answer to that, I believe, from Patrick himself, um, who this is a, a prayer of Patrick's. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me. God's might to uphold me. God's wisdom to guide me. This is what it means when the Lord is surrounding his people. God's eye to look before me. God's ear to hear me. God's word to speak for me. God's hand to guard me. God's way to lie before me. God's shield to protect me. God's host to save me from the snares of devils, from temptations, of vices, from everyone who shall wish me ill. Christ to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come to be an abundance of reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my life, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. I arise today through a mighty strength. People of God, that's who, you, it's, that, that's what you're given in Christ. Whatever comes out of the dark abyss. Verse one, stability. Verse two, security. This last point, uh, the plan was to do it very quickly. I will do it quickly. Um, verses three to five. Here's what you have in these verses. Certainty. There's a certainty. God is saying, oh, I know there's a scepter of, of wickedness, but I won't, it, it will not rest. It won't abide. It won't remain. I know there's corruption around you. I know there's foolishness around you. I know that there's people around you that don't love me. One day, they'll be done. And the thing that will remain is this beautiful word in the last verse, peace. Peace shall be upon you. 
this shalom, this wholeness, not just the cessation of conflict, but the presence of wholeness, the way things are always supposed to be. That the calamities and the fears and the concerns and the worries and the policies and the struggles and, 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 and uh, fill in the blank, that's going to fade. And what's going to be left is my kingdom for my people. Even if it doesn't look that way, God wins. God wins. Came across this illustration from Micah Edmonton. He, uh, I think just captures this really well. 2002 Winter Olympics, Winter Olympics um, a guy named Stephen Bradbury of Australia won what was probably the most improbable gold medal um, imaginable. He was the first Australian to actually win a gold at the Winter Olympics. He was the first person to win a gold medal from the Southern Hemisphere in the 2002 Olympics. Um, it was an event, was the 1,000-meter the speed skating event, and he's in the quarterfinal race. And the way this works is you would have four racers racing in this 1,000-meter event, and only the top two would go through. Two of the other people in his field, he was by far... Uh, the, the, he was the, by far the underdog in this race. Two of the people in this race, one of them was a guy named uh, Mark Gannon, who was the defending world champion, and then Apollo Ant Anton Ono. You remember? Yeah, you go USA. All right. So, so they're in the race, and you have to be one of the top two to even go through to the semifinals. So the race starts. He immediately falls behind. He's behind the entire race. And then he gets up to third. He's third, though. He's done. But after the race, the judges actually ended up disqualifying Gannon. So he went through. He's now in the semifinal race. Bradbury again, he's in last place. In this heat, in the semifinals, he's got to be in the top two to get to the, the finals in this race. Our former Olympic champions, former world champions, he is not supposed to win. And in the race, at some point in the race, they take each other out. And this guy skates across the line in first place. Finals. You remember, it's so fun when I heard this illustration, it reminded me of seeing this, it's just incredible. Final race, all the competitors line up, Bradbury lines up, race starts, immediately he's off pace. Can't keep up. The race is going, and these are fast races. I mean, it's really quick, crazy stuff happening. They're flying around this, this oval-shaped track, and they're going and going, and he continues to fall further behind. They're on the last lap. He is half a lap back. And on the final corner, as his competitors are going on the final turn, one of them clips one of the guys on the outside, and they all go smashing into the wall, and Bradbury just, whoo I mean, it's just like, I can't, I, I wish you would have like turned around and done like a pirouette. It would have been awesome. He just slowly crosses the finish line. Gold medal. He was slower. He was older. He was outmatched in every way. But he stayed on his feet. He didn't stumble. And he won. Look, I get it. I, I know things can look bleak and confusing and worrisome and fearful. And there are a lot of things in this broken world. To, oh, there's beautiful things. Don't get me wrong. But you're out in the ocean, the beauty and the shark comes. But there's a God who is powerful. And there is a God who keeps his promises. And those that stare at him, instead of all the doom scrolling, instead of all the crazy headlines, Instead of all the fretful conversations, 
And so of all the planning and control and, oh goodness, those that look to him, those that trust in him, they become like mountains. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Well, we stand firm today through God's strength to pilot us. God's might to uphold us. God's wisdom to guide us. God's eye to look before us. God's ear to hear us. God's word to speak for us. God's hand to guard us. God's way to lie before us. God's shield to protect us. God surround us to save us from the snares of devils, from temptations of vices, from everyone who shall wish us ill. Help us to believe this, God, that Christ is with us. Christ is before us. Christ is behind us. Christ is in us. Christ is beneath us. Christ is above us. Christ is on our right. Christ is on our left. Christ is there when we lie down. And when we stand up, Lord, give us grace to trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As the band comes forward, we're going to respond as we do every single week with communion. For us as a church, we, we really believe that during the services, we gather corporately to spur each other on, to be reminded of all that God has done. This moment is the most important. As we receive communion together, it is a declaration that evil won't win, that Christ reigns. It's a declaration for all those who are in Christ that you are pure and forgiven, that you are adopted and justified. Just like, the, like look to the mountain and, and, and see something to try to make it real. Let these elements make all that Christ is and all that Christ has done more real to you. That he is a perfect Savior, a full Savior. That he will bring a perfect salvation and a new creation. That he is working all things out for good. For those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. That you're his. That you're robed in him. And then be strong in the strength of the Lord. And the strength of his might. As you hold these elements, you have the, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation you hold up that shield of faith and you go into this world like Patrick, not with anger and meanness and fretfulness, but with an invitation to come meet the one that can set it all right. The only condition, I don't call it a condition, but the, the, the only obstacle to you going to this table of taking this bread representing Christ's body and this, this juice or this wine representing Christ's blood is faith in Christ. Turn from your running, turn from your sin, turn from all the other things that you're trusting in, maybe even good things, and turn back to him. Ask him to forgive you, ask him to welcome you, ask him to renew and revitalize you, and ask him for grace to trust him more. We'll sing a few songs, you're not rushed to go to this table, you go whenever you feel led.